And uh, if you turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3, starting at verse 6 is what we'll be looking at tonight. It's page 1169 of the Church Bibles. And if you've uh, got a piece of paper, you can use the notice sheet for this. You could also turn to Genesis 15, which is on page 15 uh, of the Bibles and just put a bit of paper in there because we'll be heading there a little bit as well as we go. Now, I know I'm not alone in this. In fact, I'm pretty sure it's a unanimous male response that uh, if we get something new, a, a new appliance, or get one of those put-it-together-yourself uh, put things uh, from Ikea or the like, that no matter how complex the setting up process is, uh, instructions or any information that come with the thing are utterly irrelevant to us, unrequired. Uh, I'm a male. Of course I know how to put this thing together that I've never seen before in my life. That's our response and my house is littered with the results of this sort of mindset, whether it be uh, the step stool that sits in our uh, kitchen pantry which only has two steps and neither of them are fixed as yet, or the uh, wardrobes all throughout our house if you look closely with doors upside down or even back to front and upside down which I didn't think was possible but I've found a way... Uh, we decide that, uh, you know, instructions are for amateurs and I'm an expert at these things. I don't require it. But then there are a few things, aren't there, along the way that uh, when, when you buy them, uh, it's obvious from the start that male bravado or, or fumbling your way through it is just not going to be the way to go. Uh, an example for me is when we came across him, we, we had to buy two new child seats uh, for our children and uh, they gave me a DVD with it. Uh, for these child seats. I've never experienced that before, but I sat down very carefully and watched this DVD from beginning to end a number of times and then carefully put it in the car, double-checked I'd done it right. What's the difference? Well, the difference, of course, is that getting it wrong when it comes to a car seat, all of a sudden I'm putting something at risk far more valuable than the seat itself, my children. And when it comes to them, I I don't muck around with half-knowledge or guesswork. When it comes to them, uh, I take time. I ask the questions I need to ask. I I think hard where I need to think hard and I consider all the factors, I weigh them up because it's important to get it right, isn't it? What's at stake makes it important to get it right. And so tonight what I want to invite you to do is to do just that, to think hard, to take the time to put your brain in gear, which may be a difficult thing to do uh, on a balmy summer's or May evening as it is, but that's what we need to do together because the risk of getting it wrong tonight is immense. The treasure on offer is second to none. In fact, there's no treasure that can be put alongside it. Tonight, uh, as we look at this passage in Galatians, uh, we come to a passage that takes work. Uh, It's not a fluffy passage by any stretch. You would have felt that as it was read. It's full of concrete and substance and ideas and history. But it's worth considering carefully because doing so could make the difference between blessing or curse, acceptance or condemnation, life or death, God's favour in your life or his utter opposition to you and everything you are about. It's worth thinking hard, isn't it? What's on offer tonight is simple. 
God says to us, if you consider the things before us in this passage carefully, you can be completely sure of God's blessing in your life. You can be completely sure his blessing, his complete, total blessing is yours. And so let's pray. Let's pray and ask God to help us think hard tonight, even in the heat, that we can see what's at stake. Let's pray together. In the book of Isaiah, the Lord says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. And so, Father, we ask tonight that you give us hearts and minds ready to consider the realities that you will put before us in your word. Give us the desire to reason with you, to think deep on the things that matter most. And through this, and through the powerful working of your spirit, give us the assurance of your blessing for us. In the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, that's the question before us tonight. How can I know for sure that I have God's blessing? Not only have received it at some point when I became a Christian, how can I be sure that I'll hang on to it as I go along? And it's the question we're asking because it's the question behind the whole letter to the Galatians. How can I be sure? Now, before we uh, explore together the how, we, we must first answer the what. What is it that we're trying to secure here? What is this blessing that God offers that we would want to hang on to? So let me ask you, if someone was to ask you that question, what is it to be blessed by God? How would you answer them? Well, here's my take on it as I was thinking about it this afternoon. I, w- I want you to picture yourself walking on a, on a glorious summer's day, a bit like today. And as you're walking, you, you realise you've wandered into a garden that's not yours, a glorious garden, full of life and sounds and sights and smells, full of the, the obvious care of its owner, full of goodness and generosity and, and wisdom and beauty. And as you're walking along, you see someone and you call them over and you ask, tell me, am I allowed to be in this garden? Answer, of course you are. You, my friend, have complete access here. You have every justification to walk its full dimensions, access all areas, come in, enjoy. And so you enter in and you can't believe you've got access and then you ask a second question. Tell me, who owns this garden? Answer, God does, of course. He made it, all of it. It's life, it's goodness, it's beauty, all of it. And you say, he lets me in it, but I hardly know him. Ah, well, says the other guy, that's the best bit of all about this garden. He'll walk with you. He's your father. Welcome home. It's a great picture, isn't it? It's the picture of the Garden of Eden, the very epicentre of God's blessing right at the start of the Scriptures. The man and the woman in the garden with every right to be there and walking with their God in the cool of the day. You want to know what's at stake tonight? That's what's at stake. God's blessing is. The blessing that says we are accepted by God. And not only accepted by him, not only allowed to be in his garden, but with him. 
In a nutshell, that is the Bible's account of God's blessing to us, his favour towards us, his utter acceptance. And then life. And life as the Bible describes it, life to its full, which is being with God. But you don't have to read very far in the scriptures to know that every step man has taken from that garden onwards is a step away from blessing and towards curse, the exact opposite of this picture. Rather than acceptance, we now experience condemnation. Rather than life, it is death. And so the fundamental question that any human can ask is, how can I have that blessing again? How can I be, as our passage puts it tonight, justified before God again, that he would accept me, that I would know his favour, his goodness towards me? How can I live again with him? And really throughout this letter there have been two options, two answers to that question. How can I have it again? I either get it because God promises it to me and I trust that promise or I get it because God gives me his law, gives me the rules and he says obey it and if I do it I get this blessing. I either trust the promise or I obey the law. Trust the promise or obey the law. That's the two options all throughout this letter. Now last week as we started in chapter 3 in verses 1 to 5, Paul argued from our own experience as Christians, both when we started and as we go along as Christians, to say that we know from our experience that faith, trusting God's promise, is the only way to this blessing. But now he takes his argument up a gear and he brings us strong assurance of that from the scriptures. Paul says, "You, you want to know for sure that you have God's blessing? then I want you to consider three pieces of evidence from Scripture, three huge pieces of evidence that if you consider them carefully, you can know for sure this blessing is yours. And so have a look at uh, Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 to 9, where we see the first piece of evidence he gives us. He says, you want to be sure that the first thing you need to do is you need to consider Abraham. Verses 6 to 9, Paul gives us the ultimate example of someone who receives God's blessing. When we first meet Abraham, it's a few chapters earlier in Genesis 12 where God comes to him out of nowhere really and says, I will bless you. And so if we are to see how we receive and hang on to God's blessing, he's going to be a good place to start, isn't he? Abraham is our first port of call and especially for us and for the Galatians who have been Christians for some time because what Paul does for us so brilliantly is he doesn't take us to Genesis 12 when he refers to Abraham. He takes us further along the line in Abraham's life. He shows us his history a lot further along in trusting God. He takes us to Genesis 15. Now between Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 a lot of water has gone under the bridge in Abraham's life and a lot of it is murky water. You only need to read Genesis 12 and there he is uh, with his wife heading to Egypt and so fearful of what might happen, he says that his wife is his sister. Totally disobeying God. Disastrous consequences. And so here we have one who's not perfect, one just like us, not always obedient, wanting to hang on to God's blessing. How does he do it? Well, come with me to Genesis 15, page 15, and see how it happens. As this chapter, Genesis 15, begins, God comes before Abraham again and promises this blessing yet again. Amazing blessing. 
I will give you a seed. I will give you amazing descendants. I will give you this land. And at the heart of the blessing, there it is in verse 1, I am your reward. I will be your blessing. I will be your God. And then our question, the one we're thinking about tonight, on Abraham's lips, verse 8, O sovereign Lord, how can I know I will gain possession of it? How can I know for sure? Verse 9, in response to this question, God issues this strange instruction to Abraham. Bring me a heifer, a goat, a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Now, I'm not sure about you, but when I read that instruction, I have no idea what is going on at that point. And yet from verses 10 to 11, it's clear Abraham does. And if you read Jeremiah 34, you will see that this ceremony, this thing that's being set up by God is the typical way that a covenant was sealed, that agreement between two parties was made, that a promise was sealed. And once this strange path of cut up animals is set up, what would happen is the two parties would, the two promising parties would walk along the path, walk between these cut up animals, identifying themselves with the animals either side and basically saying, if I'm unfaithful to this promise, if I'm unfaithful to this covenant, may I be like these animals, may I die. And so Abraham knows this is what God has in mind and he thinks to himself, what God is going to do is that he and I are going to form a partnership here, an agreement. We're going to walk through the path together and that's how I'm going to be sure. But watch what happens and watch carefully because this is crucial to our answer tonight. How do I secure blessing? Do I trust the promise or do I obey the law? Watch what God does and then watch what Abraham does. Have a look at verse 17. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. In the midst of darkness, in the, in the midst of God again speaking his promise as he does all around this verse comes this smoking pot, this fire and this blazing light all throughout the Old Testament, an image of God's very presence. And it is this pot, this blazing fire and light that alone passes through these pieces, these animals. And as it does, yet again the promise comes. Don't miss this. What's happening here is remarkable. And so important for us to see. How does God deliver his blessing to Abraham? He promises. Abraham accepts, he believes it. And then God, and God alone, takes on himself the curse of unfaithfulness to that promise. Surely there is no better statement that blessing is by promise alone than this. And this is why Paul takes us here. He says, you want to be sure, look at Abraham. Look at what God does. God alone goes between these pieces. He says to Abraham, if I don't do what I've promised you, may I be like these animals. May the God who is from everlasting to everlasting, may I die. And yet even more important than that, watch what Abraham does. Nothing. God never asks Abraham to walk through the pieces. Abraham does nothing. There's nothing he can do to cancel this promise. There's nothing he can do to secure this promise. 
And so here we see that salvation, God's blessing, it's not a cooperative effort between God and us. We do no work. It's by grace. God says, I will bless you. If I'm not faithful to this relationship, I will die. If you're not faithful to this relationship, I will die. It's a breathtaking account of God's grace to one man and his descendants. But the obvious question for us and really for the Galatians as well is, so what? How does that secure the promise for me? That's Abraham and, and his family, not mine, not me. Well, what Paul does in verses 7 to 9 of Galatians chapter 3 for us is he makes a remarkable claim about this promise to Abraham. He says, you know what, anyone who trusts God, anyone who trusts God's promise is a descendant, a direct descendant of Abraham. The blessing that Abraham has given flows to all the nations of the world, even as far as England, even as far as Australia. And how does it flow, verse 9? Simply by faith. And so here in considering Abraham, the first thing we're asked to consider and seeing his right response to God's promise, faith alone, we are shown the very pattern of human response to God that comes all the way down to us today. Abraham was to have a lot of physical descendants after this promise, but far more significant are his spiritual descendants, those who are connected to his seed. You see it there in verse 16, who is his seed? There's only one. It's Jesus. His true family, the the family of Abraham, the children of Abraham are those who by faith belong to Christ. They are his very children. Consider Abraham, says Paul. And you can imagine that at this point the Judaizers who've come into Galatia causing all these troubles saying, well hang on, that's all well and good. But what about the law, this amazing law that God gave us 430 years after this promise? Surely he gave it for a purpose. I mean, it's God's law. It's holy and just and good. That's what Romans 7 tells us that. Therefore, surely the works that this law prescribes, the things that we're meant to do, are are good in themselves as well. Surely, in some way, that impinges on this answer to the question we're trying to ask. How can I be sure? Surely the law is in there somewhere. The promise is wonderful. Faith is essential, but surely observing the law is part of how I secure God's favour and life. Paul's response? Well, let's consider the law then. Have a look at verse 19 of uh, Galatians chapter 3 where he gets right to the heart of it. He says, well, let's think about the law. What is the purpose of the law? Paul's answer? The purpose of the law is to show us our desperate need for the gift of this promise to receive the blessing. Paul says here and elsewhere, if you really listen to the law, the the full dimensions of it, the full requirements of it, the law doesn't just list rules at you and and say, obey me. Don't lie, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't covet. That's not the half of it. If you listen deeply to what the law is saying, it says, and you will never obey me fully. If you really read the law and see what it demands of you, they they are way above your head, says Paul. The law's job is not to give us the blessing. The law's job is to reveal to us the extent of our self-delusion if we think we can do it that way. 
You know, the image that came into my head as I read verse 19 is that humanity, uh, when it comes to thinking that we can get God's acceptance on our own, we're like the black knight in Monty Python's Holy Grail. You know, when we come against the law and, it, and God accuses us before the law and we see how far short we fall, it knocks us to the ground and, and at first our arm is cut off and we cry, I've had worse. And then the second arm is cut off by further demands of the law and we say, just a flesh wound. Then the first leg, I'm invincible, I can do this. And then the final leg and we say, all right, let's call it a draw. God's law calls our behaviour what it is. We're not even close. We are transgressors. It says every step we take is not closer to blessing. We're not getting there. We're moving further away. The law shows me who I am without God's promise, condemned and dead. You see it in verses 22 and 23 of Galatians 3. The, The law imprisons me. It's my judge and then my prison warden. If I really read the law, what it does is it binds me up. It imprisons me. It knocks me off my self-reliant feet and it says, who are you kidding? You need something besides yourself if you're going to receive God's blessing. Then you see it there in verse 24, the law at best is our babysitter. It's put in charge of us and the Greek word there is of a babysitter. That's the image. Think about it. What sort of person needs a babysitter? Only one who is incapable of knowing how to behave on their own. Only one who is likely either out of ignorance or rebellion if left to their own devices to do great and lasting damage. That's us. I reckon it's hard to feel that way. We don't feel that way. We feel very capable as people, you know, if, if my mother was to ring me up and say, I'm coming to visit next weekend and uh, don't worry, we're going out on Saturday night and we've arranged a babysitter for you. How offensive would that be? I'm an adult now, Mum. I can, I can handle myself. I, I'm fine. I, I can cook even. And I think when it comes to the law, especially as we grow as Christians, we think, you know, I, I'm growing up here. I, I can do it myself. God says, no, you are a sinner. You're in prison and at best you need a babysitter. The law says you want blessing, you need something more than this. And equally importantly, have a look at through verses 19 to 25. As Paul considers the law with us, he makes clear that the law is leading us somewhere. This babysitter is directing us somewhere, pointing us somewhere. Having shown us who we are, do you see it there in verses 19 and 22 and 24? The law points to Jesus. Having shown us our desperate and hopeless state, the law points to where our help comes from. It says, consider Jesus Christ. And so that's where we turn now our third piece of evidence to consider. Have a look at verses 10 to 14. Paul says, you want to know how to be sure that you have God's blessing? The blessing of his favour, or as he calls it in verse 11 of our passage, justification, righteousness, acceptance by God. You want to be sure you have life, as he calls it in verse 11, that you will be with God. You want to be sure of that? Consider Christ and watch closely as you do what God does in Christ and what you do. This time he starts with what we do. Have a look at verses 10 and 11. 
What can I do to secure this promise? Answer, nothing. At least nothing good. The, the life I offer, do you see it there in verse 10, where when I try to please him through my obedience, through my works of the law, it says, all who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. When it comes to living up my side of the deal, I come up well short, well short of his standard. To meet his standard, I have to do absolutely everything his law demands and I know I don't. The only thing I bring to the table between God and I is my sin. The life I offer God is a cursed one, not a blessed one and I'm not alone. In fact, uh, Romans 1 to 3 says it is the status of every human, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, you name it. Paul says, what do you do to secure your blessing? Nothing. What does God do? Well, he goes between the pieces. Remember the image from Genesis 15? That's what God does. The curse falls on him. Have a look at verse 13. And any time you're starting to get too big for your boots as a Christian, starting to think, God and me, we're, we're a team in this, pull this verse out and put it before your eyes. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. What does God do? Well, he does for us on the cross what we cannot do for ourselves. He brings God's favour and life to me. He rescues me. I should be the one walking between these pieces. I'm the unfaithful one. I should be the one coming under the full weight of the curse, condemnation and death. And yet he, the only person who ever fully obeyed God's law, the only faithful one, the only righteous one, he dies under my curse. And as he does, the full promise of God's blessing comes to me by faith. As we consider Christ, take in what is being said here. It's not just that when we come to Christ in faith, he wipes our slate clean again. It's bigger than that. It is that God transfers Christ's righteousness onto me. When God looks at me, he sees me as beautiful. He looks on me with favour and complete acceptance. The righteousness I have before God comes not from my works, not a scratch of it. It comes from a swap an exchange. I'm the man of verse 10, the man under the curse. He's the man of verse 12 who does these things, the the demands of the law and lives in them. We swap completely. God walks the path, I don't. He takes my curse, I get his blessing. He takes my unrighteousness, I get his righteousness. He takes my death, I get his life. And as the curse falls on him, the full extent of this promise comes to me. Do you see it there in verse 14? He rescued us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus. It's mine. Here is God's answer to our question. How can I know for sure? Well, we saw last week your experiences tell you you can know for sure through faith. But now he says, you now, when you look at Abraham... You see God make his promise. 
You see him take all the demands of that promise on himself, leaving us with blessing. And ultimately you know it in Christ that God delivers on his promise, that he wears all the demands of the law on himself, leaving me only with blessing, freely to accept by faith. You know, as I wrote those words yesterday, I kept thinking to myself, have I oversimplified this somehow? Have I overplayed God's part in it and underplayed what he expects of us? It's hard not to resist that feeling because when we see something as good as the promise God offers, favour and life, every fibre in our being wants to play a role in bringing that about, either so we can be really sure we'll get it or so we won't feel in debt to him or so we feel we deserve it, that it's rightfully ours. We find it so hard not to distrust God's promises of blessing. Not to think, you know, I've made a mistake here somewhere. These calculations, they, they don't add up. I was thinking about that and I was, remembered a, a few weeks ago I got a knock on the door at home and there is a, a Sainsbury's man delivering a, a huge load of shopping. And as he started to load it and head back to the truck to get some more, I'm scratching my head and I'm thinking, I'm pretty sure we didn't order this. <laughs> and then there's that evil moment in your head where you're thinking, there's some great stuff in here. <laughs> we never order this sort of thing. And uh, finally I have to say to him, look, I, I think you've got the wrong house. I'm pretty sure I didn't order this. And so up he trudges with all the goods up the road. I reckon we do that so often with this promise of God's acceptance and life. We think, no, surely you've got the wrong house. I don't deserve this. Well, whenever you feel that way, I want you to remember two things. Firstly, remember what sort of God we have. Verses 15 to 18 show us that. As we've considered Abraham tonight and we consider Christ, I wonder, have you seen what they reveal about your God? He's a promise maker. That's his nature. He promises the very thing this cursed world needs. Blessing. He promises the very thing a condemned world needs. Acceptance. He promises the very thing we, under the sentence of death, need. Life. Our God is a promise maker. And more than that, he is a promise keeper. You see it there in verse 15, it speaks of promises and covenants and contracts and it says, you know, they're meant to be unbreakable. That's the nature of them. I suspect this is why we have so much trouble thinking faith is enough because we're used to contracts and promises being broken in our world. But Paul says, with God, that doesn't happen. He makes a promise to Abraham and then he keeps it. He makes a promise through Christ and then he keeps it. Our God is a promise keeper. Our God is a promise giver. Have a look at verse 18. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. See that word gave in verse 18? The Greek word there refers to a free gift, no strings attached, no cost, no demands, no expectation. It's a gift outright. And the the Greek word is in the perfect tense. It talks about a gift that's already been given. This, This promise, this blessing that God speaks of, it's not the carrot he holds in front of us hoping we run hard enough for long enough to get it. 
No, by faith you've already received it. The one who accepts this gift by faith, God says you can do nothing more to earn it. You can do nothing to lose it. It's yours already. Nothing to lose it any more than a father can reclaim his inheritance from his children once he has died. Our God is a promise maker. He is a promise keeper and a promise giver. And finally, whenever you feel that you don't deserve it, remember what you're in on. Verse 14. Because of Christ, God has delivered on his promise forever. Because of faith, that promise belongs to you, not because of anything you've done, but because of his promise. Favour, no condemnation, life, fellowship with him. And you see how that fellowship is described in verse 14, the high point of this blessing, his very spirit comes into us. This is how Ephesians chapter 1 describes it. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit who is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. God's spirit is with you. It is the spirit by which God says, I accept you, I'm with you. It's the spirit that enables me to say, he's my father. It's the spirit that welcomes us home and says, you are free. I remember in 2000, the Sydney Olympics, a lot was hanging on one particular individual on a particular night on the athletics track. Her name was Cathy Freeman. And it's one of those things when, when your, your town has its Olympics, everything, you're desperate to have a local medal winner and she was it. She was our big hope of 400 metres. An amazing runner, could have easily won. And she's standing there uh, on, uh, on the dais and, and on the, uh, the start track and they, they all get into the crouch position, ready to start, and the camera zooms in on her. The whole nation, the whole weight of expectations, all sorts of newspaper articles leading up to it, huge weight on her shoulders and it's zooming in and there on her shoulder she has tattooed because I'm free and I remember seeing that and thinking that's that's exactly right there she is with 400 metres to run all this expectation and she is utterly oblivious to it she runs because she's free and I remember looking at that image that night and thinking that's what a Christian is we run like that Run without fear of failure because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Run sure of God's acceptance because he's promised it to me. Run sure of his presence because he is with me even now by his spirit. Let's pray.